You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Hello and welcome to the 602 Club, Trek FLM's local watering hole. Just sitting back and enjoying something delicious as we're about to dive into a brand new franchise. Well, we've covered it before, but we're going back to the very beginning because we haven't covered all of it. And uh, with me to discuss the very first Mission Impossible film is none other than, well, the impossible man himself, John Champion. Thank you for that. I, I am up to this uh, impossible mission. I, I am ready to go. Yeah. Very excited okay. about so you, this. So you, you do choose to accept this mission. I choose to accept. Um, we we okay. will have a big problem if my computer self-destructs in five seconds. We're going to have to start all over with a whole new computer. <laughs> That'll be a problem. It will make your edit a lot more difficult. Yeah. Uh, absolutely would. It absolutely mm-hmm. would. But luckily, no destruction going to happen. Um, don't worry. All your computing devices are safe while listening to this podcast, at least that I know of. Um, I'm not responsible for any, you know, wear and tear that you may put on your device that causes it to quit whilst listening to this podcast. That is not our fault. But uh, you can also, uh, you know, you can find us all over the place. Uh, we are everywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, but, um, you know, if you happen to be over on Apple Podcasts, give us that old star rating review, help people find the show. Uh, and make sure wherever you're getting your podcast, subscribe to the show. Uh, because the moment that I drop the show, you will get it in your podcast feed and be able to enjoy the 602 Club. Uh, now, you can also find us uh, all over social media. We've got Twitter at TrekFM or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. Maybe you would like to discuss everything that we do here on TrekFM with other listeners. We have a special group for you called the Babel Conference. It's on Facebook. Type Babel into the search field there on Facebook or go to the website at Trek.FM and any of the show pages that you're on, you'll see a little discussion button. Click that and it'll bring you over there. Of course, as I mentioned, we're on the web at Trek.FM and maybe you would like to send us an email. Love getting emails on the show. Go to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and you can send whatever you would like to us um, through that means. And, you know, maybe you've got ideas for your show, maybe you missed something, maybe you want to, you know, uh, hear us discuss something, or maybe we missed something and you want us to know about it, so make sure you send us an email. Now, John, very interesting with uh, these Mission Impossible films and, you know, back in, you know, 96, when this comes out, uh, you know, it, it's it's something that, you know, we, we've we've got Bond at that point. But we I don't feel like I don't know. I, I don't feel like th- there were a ton of like spy things happening in the 90s. And so the idea of bringing back Mission Impossible, I'm really interested. One, I know you're a huge man from uncle fan. Did you also watch the original TV show 
I, you know, it's interesting. I did, but it was kind of on and off because it wasn't always easy to find. Um, mm. But like Uncle and like Star Trek and a like like a lot of other kind of big '60s properties, you still had access to it around through things like right. you know books and albums and and there there was this fan base that existed. So there were articles about it, and there was anticipation that this is one of those properties that could and should come back. Now. I don't know if you remember that there was a revival TV series that lasted a couple of seasons. I want to say like 88 to 90 or, or maybe maybe I'm off by a year or so hmm. um, mm -hmm. that had Peter Graves as Jim Phelps mm. leading a new IMF team. So I was a fan of Mission Impossible because I had seen – pieces of the reruns around and i just mm -hmm. knew of it but when that revival series came on then that was something that was new that i got to watch in first run you know the entirety of that two seasons or so that it ran so it was definitely on my radar again and obviously when the dvds came out of the uh, the original mission impossible you know that that kind of reinvigorated my interest in uh, in that series so i i knew of it i wasn't as steeped in it as i was my bond fandom or my star trek fandom or my uncle fandom um but it, it always seemed to me like a good idea as something that uh that that was fresh for that was ripe for some new eyes some new fresh uh blood to take it on yeah this is uh this is an interesting one for me because you know i i knew of the tv show you know and it'll sound funny to people now um because nick at night is totally different it's like friends and stuff so it's all the stuff i watched as a kid mm -hmm. but like this was the kind of stuff that you would have on nick at night mm-hmm Mm -hmm. And so I I had seen bits and pieces of it here and there, but it was never a show that I really got a chance to watch. And, you know, I remember in 96 when this was coming out, it was a pretty big deal. You know, I was, I, I guess, um, junior in high school. Mm -hmm. No, I was a sophomore in high school. Goodness, yeah. Anyway, um, and... Uh, this came out and it was a big deal for me and my friends because we got to go see it in the theater. Um, and that was really kind of my first exp experience with, with Mission Impossible. But it did become a franchise that I would then follow throughout the entire rest of its run all the way up to, you know, this this last year we had uh, Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah. And so um, was this something, too, when it came out in the theater you were really excited to see? Oh, Totally. A hundred percent. And, and e even just knowing it, and this is one of the controversial things about the uncle movie that came out in 2015, uh, that they didn't use the original uncle, uh, uh, score the original uncle theme music in it, except mm -hmm. for that one brief little glimpse of it on the radio. Yep. Just knowing that they had the original mission impossible theme in this movie, it, it, it definitely got me excited because it was like, okay, Brian De Palma, Tom Cruise, everybody making this movie, they care. They care about the original series. So there's going to be something in there that that it, it at least is the, uh, I believe Norman Lau has said, the spiritual successor. I didn't need it to be the same, but but just some feeling like the original. 
So, um, yeah, I, I was thrilled. And also, you know, again, just being kind of a spy fan anyway, I, I was ready to see a new uh, spy franchise take off. Well, and, and what I think helps with the Mission Impossible series is that it's a different type of series. It's a different type of spy series than even really Uncle mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, uh the Bond series, this isn't about one person. This is about a team, and they all have to work together. And And I think that creates for some really interesting dynamics, and it gives you a whole new setup. Um, and in, in many ways, you know, I kind of think that there's a little bit more of a realism yeah. to Mission Impossible, it, especially this first film. You know, there, there's a there's a total sense of realism here. Like you could you could see these kind of things happening. Maybe not the masks, <laughs> um, but you know, I, it just they're they're. It feels much more based and grounded in the world in which we live. In that sense, you know, and we've talked through all the Bond films, so we've been through all of the craziness that was there in those movies and so many of them and then they would have to reel it back in and it would feel much more grounded and gritty and down to earth mm-hmm. whereas i think you know at least as, as we start here this definitely feels like a movie that's kind of grounded in the world of you know uh 1996 uh, yeah and and maybe slightly exaggerated, or just one of those things where like, oh well, bet spies could do that with the technology. Well, you know, yeah, that's the interesting thing about it because there's something about this movie that is dated, but not in a terrible way. You know, we we talked about mm-hmm. some of the Bond films feeling dated and out of touch, but others just feeling like they are the product of their time, and and this movie overall. I think it really benefits from having that that 1996 technology, but pushed a little beyond, just a little like, oh, but if this computer could only do this one extra thing that we needed to do, if this cell phone could do this one extra thing that we want it to do. So it helps the believability overall. It also benefits just from Brian De Palma's deft hand as a director. You, you, you can tell... Uh, not specifically that it's him, but you can tell it's a director who who definitely knows what he's doing. Um, so all those things, I think, uh, uh, benefit and and feed my overall enjoyment of the movie. Um, I, I, you know, had this been just sort of uh, had this sort of just been the product of a studio saying, "Oh, well, we got this other project here. We got this other property here that we need to revive." just throw somebody in it and make it <laughs> so we can maintain our copyright on it, then I, we, we would have had a, a much worse time of it. And I think that's the interesting thing, you know, when you we look at kind of creating this mission, you know, this is something that the, the Paramount's owned the rights to it for a long time. And it is Tom Cruise legitimately coming into the studio and saying, hey, I think that this would make a good film, I think we should do it, and I would like to partner with you with my produ- new production company to do this. And so I think it, you you starting with somebody who believes in the process and believes in uh, the uh, the the film as 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 something that should be done and 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 can be successful. I think that's the thing that really uh, 
drives this because you know he's a, been a fan of this since he was a kid um and he's the one who comes in um and s- to the studio with an idea of doing this and i i think there's a real validity in in people having a passion about what they do um especially in filmmaking and you can usually see that passion come out in in the product that you get and there's a big difference between like what you said uh, studio just kind of putting something out there because they have to put something out there and an actor and then a studio kind of believing in a project and putting pretty much everything they have behind it yeah a hundred percent i mean um (laughs) with a beloved franchise as we know there are a million ways to screw it up um there there are fortunately many ways to get it right too and one thing that i you know revisiting this film more than 20 years after it came out and i hadn't this is not a movie that i had rewatched a lot um but revisiting it i I was immediately struck with sort of well first and foremost the quality of the cast uh because we're we're introduced to one cast at the beginning then we get rid of them (laughs) <laughs> then we we have to bond with another cast going into the second half of the movie, which is a pretty cool and, and pretty bold thing to do. But overall, that's handled really well. Um, but I, I'm just struck how even if this had not turned into a franchise, that as a standalone movie, it really works. And e- even just as... Uh, another quality piece of the overall Tom Cruise pantheon of films as the overall Brian De Palma films that that these all really hold up you know this one in particular holds up as a nice fit for for either of those resumes Um, it, it is it is first and foremost a movie that just does the job of telling the story without feeling like they have to be too precious about anything mm-hmm. in it. And I know that that was a controversial point when this came out. Uh, a, killing off part of the cast at the beginning. Um, and that had, uh, a, in one draft, that that was intended to be the original cast of the original TV series, Mission Impossible. And and I know that Martin Landau balked at that, and a lot of people who knew that balked at that idea. Um so that that was one thing that was uh, definitely a big concern, and then making Jim Phelps the bad guy—that that, that that was a big concern. Um, you know, to me, to me, it wasn't the same egregious thing of say, uh, "Oh, we're going to make James Bond the bad guy in the next Bond film." Right? No, you're not going to do that. But but in a reboot reimagination. Uh, new way of telling the story, you could possibly take an M and make that M a bad guy, but then you mm-hmm. lose that character and you reintroduce that character in the next film. So again, I, I didn't feel like anything here was so precious that it uh, it would ruin my experience as a fan of the original, now hoping to be a fan of this new, new in 1996 series right. as well. well it, it's, it's really... You know, fascinating as they're creating this movie because uh, they hire Sidney Pollock uh, to write the movie and De Palma to direct. 
And then they end up bringing in three more script writers. And in the end, they still don't have a finished script (laughs) during the filming. They have the action set pieces and they have the basic plot. And they know that they want to continue to surprise the audience. But they really don't have what you would want to have, which is everything kind of really nailed down while working on this movie, which I think is fantastic fascinating because that's actually something that will continue all the way through into like uh the the mission impossible movies that uh chris mccrory directs Mm -hmm. you know him and 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 crews always kind of start with these big action set pieces and they kind of find the story to fit around those and normally you wouldn't make a film like that you know it would seem like a horrible idea for a way to make a film and yet they have found ways to make this work. And I think that's something that's really fascinating to me in this movie because I think, spoiler alert, that this, they, were, they are able to pull it off in this movie and to make it work the way that you would want it to work. Well, that's the thing. Yet 99% of the time, if you hear, well, we went to production without a finished mm-hmm. script and we had all these ideas for action set pieces and we figured we'd just sort of find the story around it. 99% of the time, you would be justified in thinking, this is a horrible idea. This is not a movie I yeah, want to that's see. That's going to be crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you would be right. Uh, but uh, somehow, again, you, you have the right combination of cast and director and writers crafting this thing together somehow. Now, mm-hmm. this first Mission Impossible movie is not perfect. And, and no, there are no. elements of it that get murky. But overall, again, spoiler for our final wrap up, uh, overall, it really works nicely. It does the job nicely. Yeah. And I think, you know, the thing that's really fascinating to me is that they seem to know in the end what they want to do to set the tone for this. And part of that is that in setting the tone, they create kind of a template for what the movie the movie series would be like and i think you know like you said i think they hope this will be a franchise but they don't it doesn't ever feel like they're they're just throwing in things to make it a franchise or anything like that there it does really feel like they kind of throw everything in the kitchen sink in this movie just hoping that it all works so yeah maybe people want more but we also just want it to work mm. and so um you know throughout the rest of the films the credits, the way they do the credits, they they set it up almost in the same way that you have the Bond credits, where like you you would have the gun barrel sequence, and then you have this crazy credit sequence. Well, for them, the credits are the fuse getting lit. Yes, you have the fuse getting lit, and then as that kind of winds around, you see scenes from the movie out of order. Yep, but you kind of get in a a, a taste of what's coming next. Yep. Um, and they continue to do that it, through the rest of the series. It's right out of the TV show. You you had yeah. to have that the match being lit and lighting the fuse. And that's just it, it's one of those iconic things. It, it's sort of like if you you don't have a Bond movie if you don't have the gun barrel sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, although I unless it's the Craig I say, movies, yeah. the Craig movies <laughs> and then you have to re-justify it, which they did. Uh, but yeah, it, it's sort of. It would be that disappointment of watching Never Say Never, and it, it, it opens without the gun barrel sequence. You know, what is this 
007 logo and this weird music that isn't the Bond music, you know. So they they got it right in that sense with Mission Impossible. They're saying, yes, we watched the show. We loved these elements of the show. We're going to give this to you, but in a big, new, silver screen kind of way. Well, and it's the the same thing. They kind of continue on, and this will be a big part, a really big part of the rest of the series, especially as you get into the later films where the the stunts keep getting more and more outrageous. Um, But they're trying to keep the action as real as possible, which is great because I think it grounds the movie in reality the same way you got those Bond movies, aside from Die Another Day, (laughs) where everything is, is very down to earth and it's something that had to be they had to figure out how do you do this um and i mean the the two big ones here that, that they work very hard to to do are the the scene in the restaurant with uh, all of the lobster tanks right. and all of the fish tanks which to blow that up was like 16 tons of water wow and this is tom cruise's idea <laughs> Um, and they can't figure out a way to do it without him. So even though he might drown, yeah, they still do it <laughs> with him, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, and then the the same thing. Obviously, they can't do the train sequence for real. Yeah. Um, but uh, Cruz was very keen on making sure that they could make it look like he was on a train going that fast, and so in. So getting the uh, the wind machine, the, the simulator that would allow him to look as though he was in that uh, environment, which even though the compositing work now, mm-hmm. CGI-wise, isn't amazing, I think it's consistent, so you buy it, which is great. Yeah. Um, I think that speaks for the consistency of the work, so that once you're in that sequence, you're not brought out by anything, feeling like off. They do a really good job with the consistency of it. So your brain allows you to feel like you're still there. And I think, you know, with those sequences and then everything else that they do in the movie stunt wise, where Tom Cruise is just doing it, um, I think they really create a, a tone for this this the action of Mission Impossible that lets you know, yes, this is what these films are going to be like from now Mm on. Yeah, and it was only the train sequence. And and even then, most of the train sequence I I was good with. A lot of the stuff with the helicopter just really took me out of it uh, because it was so cartoony. And and again, with the compositing, Mm -hmm. when you throw an actor in that CG composite, it just sort of flattened out. And it looked like, okay, clearly these elements were nowhere near each other when this sequence was produced. Um, But for the most part, uh, the rest of those sequences I was okay with. What, What really struck me is, you know, the first, well, hour or more of the movie where a lot of that stuff is, as you pointed out at the beginning of this, just very real world. We're on these kind of quiet, dark streets. Um, we're we're in sort of lived in spaces. So you you contrast that within the high technology that they introduce throughout. Um, and, and it really gives this sense of uh, uh, of place, but this sense of groundedness to everything. Well, and what's what's awesome in 
this movie too, you know, again, setting the tone. They set the tone with the masks, how that's going to be a part of it. They also kind of set the tone where IMF is either in trouble or Ethan and his team have been disavowed or are close to being disavowed. Uh, of course, not throwing away the theme music, which I think is huge. <laughs> Why would you throw away that theme music? Yeah. It would be like the new Bond movies completely getting rid of yep. it. Just dumb. Can't do it. You know? Can't do it. No. Yeah. Um, and then they definitely set up the fact that this is, the, each Mission Impossible movie is definitely going to have a lot of twists and turns. Uh, in the plot, so you dever you need to be paying attention, which I think is great. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. hey, pay attention. Um, and then, uh, last but not least, too, I think they set up the idea that each one of these movies is most likely going to have some kind of heist, and it's going to be so difficult that it's impossible, but they're going to find a way through. Yes. It, you know, yes. and and when you look at that list of of kind of the tone of the Mission Impossible movies, I mean. I think it's a it's a really smart list. Like it's it's a well thought out list here, and it's something that going forward it's going to be interesting when we kind of look at two and three and four, which we haven't talked about yet here in Six Hundred Two Club. Seeing how they kind of live up to that, and and do they utilize that well? Does it does it create a trap for them, or they will find a way around these things? So. Yeah, I think that's going to be really fun. But this movie, definitely, I mean, having just, you know, recently on the show this year talked about Fallout, most of these things are still a part of the the formula of the Mission Impossible films, which is kind of crazy. So, mm-hmm. Well, and that's always the trick with uh, whether it's a sequel or in this case an established franchise. Again, fans want the same, but completely different. They went completely different, but the same. Mm-hmm. So I think you nailed it when you, you presented your list of what are the elements that have to be here. But, you know, there's something nice about uh, Mission Impossible and particularly the way that the original Mission Impossible was presented that you also don't have a lot of baggage that you're bringing to the table. So That's you, true, the, yeah. it, it allows the filmmakers here a little uh, free reign to introduce these new elements that they want. Uh, as long as we still have some of those hallmarks, you know, you mentioned the masks, you gotta have the masks, even in, in the sixties, it was clearly the real actor playing whatever part they're playing. And then you do that kind of awkward cut where they're pulling something that is the semblance of the mask of that actor only to reveal then one of our IMF agents underneath it. <laughs> you know, no mask is ever that good anywhere in real life, but you have to have that to have the show. Well, and, and I think what's interesting to me is that it, it seems as though, and though I'm not as familiar with the original show, they did find the things that were hallmarks of that series and they made sure that they were a part of this mm-hmm. franchise mm-hmm. and in this film so that going forward it became a part of then you know it's like when we talked about how the bond films by the time you got to goldeneye the formula was set yeah here that i feel like they kind of come in and they know what the formula is going to be for them and it's that list that we just talked about right right you know that's what a mission impossible movie is going to be and, you know, if you, again, you look all the way to something like Fallout and many of these things are still there. And in fact, there are a lot of homages even to this film in that. 
and that's the sixth movie in the franchise. And so it's very interesting how they put that together. So you talked a little bit about how you liked um, the cast. And, you know, it, Tom Cruise is kind of right in the middle of uh, a time period in 96 where he's very popular. It's very funny to go back to this uh, time, too, because he's very young comparatively. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you think of of just the fact of, of him being Ethan Hunt and and being kind of our main focal point? You know, even it, it's a team movie. But yeah. Tom Cruise is the star. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is a, a little, that takes a little bit of a, a, of a shift if you grew up watching Mission Impossible because it was always about the team. And even if Jim Phelps was the leader in, in any particular case, it was still about the team. Everybody brought their specific talent into whatever the the mission was but here we are in a different case where it's the 90s and it's a big budget studio feature you have to have a star behind that so of course tom cruise is going to be front and center um it's a little hard for me to separate the tom cruise that i know of now as a movie star for what you know 35 years i'm trying to think of when risky business came out 82 83 somewhere mm -hmm. around there um and everything that we know about tom cruise outside of his life as a movie star a little hard for me to separate that and just think about okay who was tom cruise in the mid 90s you know he he was obviously still a big star um and, and we had an expectation to see him front and center. But I think this is really a place that we solidified the idea that, oh, here's a guy who will go do his own stunts. Here's a guy who, if he's going to have influence on a movie, unlike sometimes when you have actors who have a big influence on their own movies, the movie actually benefits from this. <laughs> you know, that, that's something that I really admire about him and his career is that he takes such a dedicated interest to everything that he's been in. Even if the movie doesn't turn out that great, um, he is throwing himself fully into it and being an active participant instead of just a guy who shows up and does his lines and then leaves. So um, shifting the focus to him, you sort of go like, okay, well, who else would they have put in that role? And it's kind of hard to think about who that would be anyway. And if you're going to have a Tom Cruise, well, yeah, you're going to have to spend a good amount of your time on him, but also making sure that you justify the rest of the team that's there. And I think they do a really good job of that. I love Jean Reno. I love Ving Rhames. I love Emmanuel Bert. I wish that she were a bigger star um uh, throughout her career because I, I think she's really cool and and i've only seen her in just a few things but uh, i think she's a good uh addition to this cast so you know I, I i can't i can't picture this movie with anybody else other than tom cruise and it's hard to picture this movie with anybody who's not the star and big you know big letters on the mm -hmm. marquee the star of this picture so one of the things that um, is really neat about Christopher McQuarrie, who's the director of the the latest two Mission Impossible films, is he's loquacious and he loves talking about the process of making movies. And one of the things he talks about is Tom Cruise specifically and, and what a collaborator he is, how wonderful he is to work with. Um, 
how much he cares about the film he's involved in. And I, I think that you were absolutely right in the sense that when we see that Tom Cruise goes to the studio, he thinks this is a good idea. He really does take this under his wing to say, yes, I'm going to do everything possible to make sure that this is the best movie it can be. And I do think that that comes through in everything that he does in this movie. Um, I, I don't think that he ever, in any of the scenes, plays the star mm. in the sense of, like, look at me at the camera. He's always um, the star that the movie needs, not the not that he thinks you need. You know, yeah. uh, I think there's a big difference in, in that, you know, when an actor seems to be just playing things up for the camera and, and when he's actually doing what's best for the role. And I think he really does that here. Um, and he does it convincingly, you know, and, and what's crazy is I think we forget how good of an actor Tom Cruise can be. For sure. And I think in this movie, he really... He wears on his sleeve and in his body, you know, the, the bruises that he gets and, and, and the, the, the stress of what's happening. Um, it's great. You know, I mean, the moment that I love the most is when he's telling the guy, you think I would have let you have the list? You <laughs> yes. think I would have let you have the list, Franz? Yeah. No. Yeah. And then, you know, he talks him down. The guy throws it in the wastebasket. He walks out. Yeah. Tom Cruise goes to the bin, picks it up, throws the other one in, and Ving Rhames is like, wait, he had the list the whole time? <laughs> and like, but there's a moment there where he realizes, wow, okay, Ethan Hutt's really great. But he, you also kind of see this like, <sighs> on Tom Cruise, where he's just like, okay, I can't believe that worked. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Oh, uh, it's great. Um no, and I think you're right. You know, the, the cast itself is really good. I think John Voight is the perfect character actor here to get to play Jim Phelps. And on top of that, you have Henry Krenzi, I think that's how you'd say his name, mm -hmm. uh, uh, playing as, uh, Kittredge. Yeah. And you put both of those together, and it's hard to figure out which is the bad yeah. guy. Because they both kind of play D-baggish type people. <laughs> right, 100%. Really well. Um, and so it, when, when you're in the midst of the movie and you're trying to figure out, okay, um, cause the movie continually leads you in one direction or the next of who the bad guy is until they really actually do reveal it because they give it to you from Ethan's perspective where he's figured it out. Mm -hmm. I think they do a really good job of just choosing actors who can play both of those roles. So you believe that either one is the bad person. Yeah. And I think that's great. Uh, you know, I, like you, I think the the woman who plays Claire is wonderful. I don't think I've seen her in anything else, though, hmm. since this. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, and, and not even since this, but I, I think it was before this that uh, she was in a Roman Polanski film, um, and then later on, like I think mostly what she's done has been uh, um, a lot of French films. Uh, Menon of the Spring, Menon de, de la Sourse, which came out in the 80s. I think that was when I first uh, knew who she was, but that was probably because I was in a French class and they made us watch it. <laughs> but it was great. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and she's really good. But I, I think most of her work is known outside of the U.S., um, but yeah, she's uh, she's terrific. 
Well, I, I, what's nice about it is that she she adds uh, a real sense of international kind of flavor to the film, mm-hmm. um, which I think is great. Um, you know, I it's it, again watching this movie and going back in time. Everybody is younger, and I just I do love Ving Rhames uh, yes. in this this movie. Yes, he's just. Uh, there's just something so lovable about him. You just kind of want to give him a big hug. And <laughs> I really enjoyed him in the role. I think he does a great job. And, you know, I think that he endears himself to you and he doesn't have a lot of screen time. Right. I think that's pretty impressive. Yeah. He, he's awesome. And, and again, Jean Reno, we, we, we can't discount because he, he's just. Oh, no, he's great. Yeah, he, he's great. Everybody in this is uh, they're They're in the right place. Uh, everybody is. And like you said, even with that casting, uh, I like to have uh, 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 Michael Cherney, uh, Kittredge. You just. Yeah, it, it keeps you guessing as to who the good guy is, who the bad guy is. And if they are a good guy, well, they're kind of a jerk. <laughs> Can we trust them? You know, it, it all works out quite nicely. The one person that I forgot was in this movie mm-hmm. was Emilio Estevez. Right. Yeah, not for long. And <laughs> Yeah, no, he's not in there for long, yeah. but I... I He's he's good, yeah. In the role, you know, as Jack, as just kind of the wisecracking tech specialist, mm-hmm. and I, I again, I really enjoy that choice. I mean, I think they make a great choice. And then on top of that, you know, you get somebody with the pedigree of Vanessa Redgrave, yes. you know, just the gravitas, yes. And it's an excellent choice for Max uh, because one course they play up the fact that you find out oh she's a woman um but then i just feel like in many ways it's kind of ahead of its time mm-hmm. to have you know the the big bad the person that everybody's like worried about is her yeah it's great yeah 100 percent. we talked a little bit about um just this movie in general and uh, it just it's it's feel How'd you how'd you like the early internet days in this one? <laughs> so, yeah, that goes back to kind of the discussion about the technology of the movie, which is it is definitely dated. Um, but I I hope that it is dated in a way that that we can look at it and go just yeah that this is a slice where this movie is of its time. And it's taking what exists and just asking us to push our our suspension of disbelief a little bit. Um, it, it, it's kind of it's kind of charming to look at this and see Ving Rhames' computer with the old rainbow uh, Apple logo mm-hmm. on it. Yep. You know, um, and, and then other things like well, you mentioned Emilio Estevez, and, and in those early scenes, we're doing that first. Um, that first mission, and you've got the multiple screens of video playing, and they're all kind of low resolution, mm-hmm. tiny little postage stamp size windows. Um, and I think, yeah, whatever computer I had in 1996, if I could get it to play video at all in one screen, uh, yes. I was I was doing pretty good. But yeah, it, that's it, it's believable enough that. That computer made for somebody who is super technically proficient, um, and again, this is in the hands of a secret agent. Um, sure, yeah, I, my suspension of disbelief can go there with you. That uh, that you could have all these video streams coming in. That that's fine. That's absolutely fine. 
the internet stuff is kind of hilarious, you know, uh, writing an email. In no movie now would you spend that much time and attention on screen of somebody writing an email, sending it, that animated <laughs> little that little, it's awesome. little graphic of the, 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 the envelope folding up and then going away. And I just think, you know, email now is so pervasive and so much of it is junk that we honestly ignore 95% of our email. So <laughs> that that's one thing that definitely does not hold up, that like a single email would be important because no, mo most of us, if we saw something come in from somebody we didn't know, it, it would just get marked as junk. <laughs> you know? But I think that's the thing that I really appreciate about the movie Obviously, they're trying to use this new technology and they're trying to show kind of the way it works mm -hmm. and everything. And and at that point, you know, the Internet is such a new thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I find that really fascinating. The fact that they're willing to kind of go there with this, I think it's great. Um, and it, it creates a sense of like, um, I think it does a good job of creating a sense of unease. Um, yeah. Because you're like, oh, this the world is kind of changing. I don't know. I, I feel like at that point there's kind of a discomfort with with seeing that. You know, this this world is different now. Hmm. Um, and I like. I just appreciate that. I think that's a it's a really smart move. Obviously, it does look silly <laughs> at this moment. Although you know, it was funny because you you look at a, a scene like uh, on the train and uh, Max is trying to send that that list out and you got finger mm -hmm. back there with his phone and the computer and i i love i love graphics in movies like this where e even with newer technology you still have to sort of telegraph everything to the audience so on screen is the text that says you know like jamming device enabled you know, big letters and they always beep which of course you would never <laughs> want if you're a secret agent um it's but it's no. using his phone to jam the signal of mm -hmm. her phone, which is connected to the computer to upload that list. Um, but I just watch that and go like, yeah, look, it's 2018, and I'm lucky if I can get a, an internet connection on my brand new phone mm -hmm. or iPad or whatever on a train in a city where there are a million cell towers. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. so that I could definitely identify with. They're on the TGV, which is running, you know, 150 miles an hour. Of course, they're not getting a connection. I I thought that was great, you know, when they're on the train and she's worried about, you know, getting the connection and everything. And I just thought, really, like you're 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 really <laughs> worried that you're not you're you're not going to get a great connection on a train, right? <laughs> Like, right. I mean, at least now, you know, those trains have internet for people, yeah. you know, on purpose. Yeah. Like they have, they just have it. Yeah. Um, but I just, I did. I thought that was great. I thought that was really funny and really well done. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that we kind of forget sometimes is like, it's okay for, for movies to have technology of their time and it not be up to today's standards. Like, that's just the way it goes. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. like, technology is changing every single day, every single moment of every single day. Yeah. And I think um, we, we, I don't know, I, I think there's a real sense of, like, cultural snobbery that we have <laughs> about our time and how great we think we are. Uh -huh. um, 
And we forget, you know, we also thought at that point that we were the greatest thing since individually wrapped slices of cheese. Right. <laughs> right. So, right. you know, maybe we should just cut ourselves a slice. And I think that's what makes this movie fun is that it uses the technology in a in a in a specific way, but it's not it I don't it's not the thing that the entire movie hinges on mm-hmm. in a in a way that makes it not seem like it doesn't still it still works. Well, look, I mean, they're 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 just tools, and and it's not like an invisible Aston Martin, you know. The, these are yeah. just the tools of the trade, and and they're not again to use the word they're not particularly precious. Um, and, and there's mm-hmm. very little in this movie that is just kind of magic, you know. Again, it, it's the suspension of disbelief that a mask would fool somebody. Fine, I think we're all good with that because we go, okay, well, well, a mask is something I understand. A mask is something that exists. We know that Hollywood makeup is really good. We're just taking it one step further in this yep. case. You know, there are only minor moments in this movie where um, where something is just happenstance. Uh, like it, in the break-in at Langley, and of course, very famously and iconically, you've got Tom Cruise suspended in the computer core room, and and everything in there is wired, whether it's for temperature or sound or pressure, even on the floor. And then he gets pulled up at the last minute. Jean Reno drops his knife, mm-hmm. and you know there were a million ways for that knife to land. But it happened to land with the point down in the table, just buying them those few extra seconds that they needed so it didn't set off the alarm so it could then get away. Little things like that, I'm okay letting slip because you're not asking me every few minutes in the movie to buy just Mm -hmm. another lucky accident. Yeah, just another coincidence. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point that the movie does a very good job of knowing when to ask the audience to suspend some disbelief and when not to. Yeah, Um, yeah. And I think that's uh, maybe even something that movies could learn today. Yeah, for sure, Um, for sure. You know, I, I think we've gotten maybe too excited with what we can do technology wise that we kind of forget that we... Maybe just because we can do a thing, maybe that doesn't mean we should do a thing. Yeah. Um, and this movie does a good job of of like we talked about the very end with the train sequence, and obviously, um, you know, technology wise, that's not the greatest thing ever now, but they do it in a way that I think works. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like I think it just works, and that's there's that's really. That's very smart of them to kind of know their limits yeah, in that way. Totally. So um, I wish, yeah, I honestly wish more movies these days would would do that. Speaking of, you you mentioned the uh, one of the stunts. What did you think of the stunts in the movie? Because um, we do have the incredible stunt, uh, like we talked about with the fish tank, the and the CIA heist, and then just. The work on the train. Yeah, I mean that that scene with the fish tank, like it, it, it's sort of easy to pass by because you just go like, oh, well, they're they're, just, they're in a restaurant. There's a fish tank. It blows up. <laughs> but but this is a very complex and very impressive stunt. And uh, my understanding is that they shot it with a stunt man. Didn't look right. 
and then they agreed yeah that that Tom Cruise needs to do this and and he did and um it plays really nicely and again one of those De Palma tricks where there are a lot of directors who will shoot an impressive uh, uh, action sequence with some slow motion to make sure you see everything. But look, in the wrong hands, that can just become a massive mistake. And and it seems plotting and overbearing and uh, uh, too obvious, too in your face. But you put that in the hands of a skilled filmmaker and it really enhances the action. It really makes you, it sort of takes your breath away. You're really soaking in all the details of this scene that, you know, a hallmark that I love about the Bond movies is that, yeah, even if it's not that actor who's playing James Bond doing that stunt, Mm -hmm. somebody really did do that stunt. Um, And that's what's impressive about a scene like that. The suspension at at, uh, Langley. I feel like, unfortunately, that scene has been parodied so many times that it loses a little bit of its luster in a rewatch. And that's also a very long sequence. Everything that leads mm-hmm. up to it, which is very clever, by the way, that, you know, the the fire trucks and them in disguise and then going from one room to another. Like, it's all very clever. It's all very fun. But that's a big chunk of the movie. <laughs> it was yep. a lot longer than I remembered it being. But again, in the 20 years since, we've seen it parodied over and over and over again. I would say most famously, um, uh, even on the MTV Movie Awards that year, uh, wasn't it Ben Stiller who did that scene I think and yeah, I think yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. So um, it, it it takes away a little bit from that, but not so much that in context of watching the movie, you don't s- still feel the tension of that scene. And, and that's mm-hmm. so good about a movie like this when it's well done is that you still feel the tension there, even if you know what's coming later. And then the train scene again, it, it, it's sort of like the lead up to the Langley stuff. It was all the lead up on the train scene that I enjoyed more than the actual, mm-hmm. well, particularly the the heavy CG stuff. But it was all the the build up to that that I enjoyed so much more. The tension of like, oh, Ving Rhames, he's been ID'd. He's got to get up. He's going to leave his phone. Oh, wait, somebody picked up his phone. What's going to happen now is all those little moments that just sort of made me sit on the edge of my seat even more. Where is this going to go? Where is this going to go? Are they going to get caught? You know, so that stuff is handled expertly so well, in fact, that when we get to the heavy, heavy stunt work and in that scene, the heavy CG work, I'm almost a little more forgiving because they lured me in with the uh, with with the buildup. I think you make a I I think you make a really good point. I, I think that the work that they do here stunt wise is really smart. Um, and I think one of the ways that they do that is by, with the stunt work, they know how far to go. But the, at the same time, one of the things I was really impressed with with the stunt work is they also, they let things breathe. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we are so used to in our editing not letting things breathe these days. Yes. Um, and I think that there's, you do yourself a disservice when you don't let your your action sequences sometimes breathe and you cut them in a way that makes it difficult to even watch them sometimes Mm -hmm. and so they don't do that here 
And I think that's really smart. And yes, I think what it is is there's a deliberateness to everything they do with the action and the stunt work, which is really helpful. Yeah, that 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 makes really a rule for any action heavy movie. And you know, I'm sure that you and I could come up with long lists of quality action movies that are that way because they they give context and character to the complex action scenes that they've devised and you got an equally long list of the movies where sure they're they're throwing money at the the situation by coming up with more and more complex stunts but but who cares because if i'm not invested in the character if i'm not invested in the context and the stakes of the scenes i i just don't care yes absolutely and if 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 i don't if I really don't care about the film and I don't care what's happening and I don't care about the uh, the stakes of everything and you haven't done a good job of selling me on all this, it really doesn't matter. And I think one of the things that they're able to do throughout the story of this is they're really able to sell the tension of it so that in those moments where, as you were mentioning, things might go slightly longer mm-hmm. than they would in today's films Mm -hmm. i i I think i'm i want it to because i i want to be able to to feel that sure you know um and i think them creating that tension is is just really smart um and so yeah i really appreciate the fact that in the action set pieces that they they take that time and they take their time with the stunts and and yeah i mean that i think you know, I was rewatching this, and I think this the stunt work with uh, what happens at the CIA is just—it's still really good. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. It's yeah. it, it's still really well done, um, and I'm really actually impressed with the with what they are able to do. Uh, and so they, I, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, yeah, I, you do a stunt like that, and I think it's incredible that they should still feel very proud of themselves for the work that they did mm-hmm. because it, it, it still holds the tension. And yeah, the train sequence, again, it's not as good as something would be today because the compositing work isn't as good. But I don't think that that actually, I don't think the rest of it is hurt. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it's still a, a well-crafted scene. The tension is still there with the scene. Um, it's a little outlandish and I think it does suffer a little bit from kind of that 90s over the topness right you know like um because it is hard to believe that this could happen at all because it couldn't <laughs> um so uh and i think that's something that they'll learn in 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 especially some of the subsequent movies is they do things that could only really happen mm-hmm. they just are outrageous and you would never think of somebody actually mm-hmm. doing it so mm-hmm. One of the things I wanted to get to before we get to the end is is we talked about the music, the fact that they used the original Mission Impossible theme. Um, but I thought it was kind of interesting that they had hired Alan Silvestri to write the score, and he even recorded about 23 minutes worth of music. Hmm. And they something happens, and they let him go. And it's Danny Elfman who does the score in the end. And I think... I think, uh, you know, I was listening to it today, and I think it's a pretty good action score. Um, I, I 
I enjoyed it. I don't know if it's one that I would listen to over and over again, but I think the way at least that he was able to work in the theme was really well done and I enjoyed it. So uh, on a whole, you know, this is, this is a, I think a, a good way to set up a, a film franchise for sure. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I had forgotten that this was Danny Elfman and that's a good thing because Look, I we all love Danny Elfman, and we all know the the totally memorable, iconic soundtracks that he's done. The problem is with Mission Impossible; it, it, it's sort of like the Bond films. And that again, if I don't have that James Bond theme in there, then I really feel robbed. I feel like I'm not getting part of the experience. So. Some mm-hmm. composers have used that very sparingly in the Bond films, only to punctuate the right moments. Some have used it over and over again. Some have used the title songs and very cleverly woven those into the soundtracks that they've created for the movies. What we didn't need to have happen here was a composer come in and go, yeah, 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 the Mission Impossible theme exists. We'll throw it in somewhere. But I'm going to put my own spin on this and just create something else out of whole cloth. No, you have a a Mm -hmm. serviceable score that punctuates the action as it should, but then you need that Mission Impossible theme because it's part nostalgia. It's also just part of the flavor of that show. Nothing else sounded like that at the time. No, no, I I I think um, there's a there's a real sense of of it would be like if you had. Star Wars and you didn't want to use um, the work by John Williams you know it's yeah. just it there are things that you just don't do and and they definitely understand that um, part of what makes Mission Impossible Mission Impossible is the theme mm-hmm. um, just like you know again uh, if, if you came in and you you just for some reason were dead set against using the Bond theme yeah um, it just, it doesn't make sense and you need it there and they do a good job of, 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 of using it. And, um, I'm glad that they do. And I, and I think Elfman does a, is a good job here. You know, um, I'm not a, a massive Elfman fan, but I think he actually is able to kind of mask some of the things that I don't necessarily love him about a composer and do it well here. So that I'm not ever pulled out of the film. I think the music works great for the movie. And I think, yeah, he just does a good job. So, I mean, there's nothing about this that I don't like in that sense. And, um, yeah, listening to it today, I was actually enjoying it and, and thinking to myself, maybe I should buy this one. <laughs> right. and, good. And, and by so. the way, I, I will say, uh, because the, the Man From U.N.C.L.E. movie took a lot of heat for not having the, the theme in there, I will give it a pass only because, A, it's a prequel. <laughs> so so they're kind of doing what the Bond films did then by not having the Bond film when or not having the Bond theme as soon as we introduce Craig as Bond, because it's a prequel in that sense, a, a reboot in mm-hmm. that sense, and that they had such a 1960s-sounding score anyway that that you, you got thrown into that period. So just wanted to throw that out there, because I know that was a big bone of contention with a lot of Uncle fans. And I get it. I understand why. Because I would have felt very cheated if Mission Impossible did not have that Mission Impossible theme but I, again, I feel like the context is very different. 
Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think you're absolutely right. Part of it here, too, is they realize, I do think they realize that they kind of need that to cement that this is Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. Like this, that that we we are not just creating out of whole cloth um, something new. This this connects with what what came before in that sense, and we're 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 basically we're paying homage to it, and and we hope that you will appreciate this film here that we're doing as much as you maybe appreciated the original show. But at the same time, like I, one of the things that you know, as you talked about earlier, like that they weren't too precious with the material to the point where they didn't feel like they couldn't make any changes whatsoever. It had to be exactly the same. They couldn't, you know, do a story where you had Jim Phelps be the bad guy kind of thing, you know, because too, that kind of throws you for a loop Mm -hmm. and it doesn't make it blase and boring, you know, like you don't want to come in and do this and, and make something that doesn't, entertain the audience in a way that makes it worth them coming to the theater to see something. Yeah. So I I think they really did that well for you talking through this movie. What do you think? What what do you think ratings wise, where do you come down with this original mission possible film? And and for you, you know, uh, uh, being somebody who like this hasn't been as big a a fandom for you, like a bond or something. When you rewatch this, were you surprised at uh, what you saw? Did you end up liking it more? Um, What's your rating here? Yeah, I, I was really surprised at how much I enjoyed revisiting this movie because it's not one that I had rewatched over and over like a lot of favorites. Like it, when it came out, I, I just remember thinking that it was great, um, and, and I, I liked the teamwork aspect of it. I liked the um, the the plot twists and the sort of bait and switch. Uh, those were all the things that I liked about watching. Mission Impossible. Now, there are a few things about Mission Impossible, the TV series, that that I can understand. Uh, hardcore fans of those shows might have uh, problems with certain things in the movies, but um, I, I I was never I, I never felt like I could only enjoy one at the expense of the other. Mm. You know, I felt like these are are things that can coexist and and they're fine. Um, there are a few things that don't hold up. Um, I, I feel like if this movie had another pass, and and it could just be because we're looking at this 20 years later, if this movie had another pass by a different uh, script writer, well, there are moments that I feel like the characters... Uh, you, you mentioned the scene with Tom Cruise, with Ethan doing the, the, the switcheroo with the, uh, with the discs, with the computer discs, you know. I thought that was very clever because it was very, very illustrative of the character and how good he mm-hmm. is. He's not thinking two steps ahead. He's thinking three, four, five steps ahead every single time he's doing something. So it was a smart moment to show him doing that with his teammates there. There are other moments, though, where I feel like it's almost a little too fun, a little too silly, a little too goofy, where they're just, like, like, they're all working together, they're all under this intense pressure, but we're going to break the tension by cracking a joke. I get that, but not always. So sometimes in this movie that plays very well. Other times it does not play very well. Um, 
again, like you mentioned, some of the CG, some of the effects don't hold up. We're also looking at this 20 years later. Um, and there are moments here that I feel like uh, it, it, it might be a De Palma thing where you've got, uh, well, let's look at that first scene when uh, Ethan Hunt, the mission has fallen apart in the first half hour, 45 minutes of the movie. The mission has fallen apart. He's got to escape, go back to the safe house. Uh, Emmanuel Baird's character's name is slipping my mind right now comes back and he's sort of interrogating her about Jim and it's intense mm -hmm. and rough, but it's kind of sexy <laughs> and I'm watching it yeah. going, okay, are, are we leading up to a kiss here? Wait, remember that just a minute ago, that was Jim Phelps's wife and Jim Phelps is sort of your mentor. It's a weird choice. And I found myself wondering, is this a Brian De Palma choice? Because he's very good at blending this sort of tension and, and intensity with eroticism, which is fine. I felt like that was an odd place to put that in this movie. So I didn't know if that was him. I didn't know if it was a script thing. I didn't know if it was a collaboration thing where the actors go, oh, what if we try to play it this way? So moments like that i look back in retrospect and just think yeah this is probably not the best choice for this scene you know so long story short um i i think for a movie that holds up better than i thought that it would that i enjoyed more than i thought it would even though i enjoyed it the first time around i'm gonna give it uh seven self-destructing tapes out of ten um, I, I could even lean toward an eight just depending on my mood. <laughs> so, but I will give it a solid seven out of 10, uh, with a self-destruct. You know, I was thinking about this, uh, and I think one of the things that was surprised me is how well most of the movie really holds up, mm -hmm. you know, and I just, you know, maybe I shouldn't be, but I, um, you know, that scene specifically, uh, there was a whole subplot at the beginning of the movie. It was longer uh, where there was this thing between um, him and her, um, you know, that there was kind of maybe this unspoken or, you know, uh, tension, mm -hmm. sexual tension. So that, yeah, that's there in that movie. And then, of course, they kind of use that a little bit later on where, you know, she's trying to sell the story to him about, you know, that uh, the fact that. Um, she's she's trying to use her feminine wiles basically to to sell Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt on what's going on, mm. um, and yeah, I don't it I I can see what you're saying like it's, it it creates this kind of strange sense at that point in the film because you're like well wait where is this coming from yeah um, and um, but on a whole I think this movie is just really well done I just really enjoyed it and I appreciate going back to a film like this you know um you know especially in i feel like the 90s there's lots of movies where you you liked them and then you go back to watch them and you're like oh oh that that doesn't work anymore <laughs> and i don't feel like that's the case here at all and that's a wonderful feeling mm -hmm. um so i'm really glad that this movie uh, is what it is. I think, you know, Cruz and De Palma really created something here that uh, gave us a framework that they could really work with. And obviously it did because, you know, they've created six movies out of this franchise now. Right. And I would say 
that they created a formula to which somebody could come in in the sixth movie and make what I thought was the best movie in the series. So that's incredible. Uh, and I guess if I'm going to have to rate this, I think I'm going to give it seven and a half out of uh, ten dead Emilio Estevez's. <laughs> so he would be you know? so happy to hear that. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, it's just really fun. Again, getting the chance to sit down and talk o- about this. I'm excited to cover. Um, you know, one through four now, and and of course, John, you said you really haven't got a chance to to watch some of the later films. No. So, so I, I can't wait now. Know. So yeah, I know yeah. it's going to be awesome. Um, but thank you so much for joining us, everyone, here at the six hundred two. Club. Uh, make sure again you're finding us all over the place subscribing and and leaving us star ratings and reviews i really want to say thank you to our associate producers ken trip davis grayson daniel noah and ryan millette they have uh, been supporting the network for a long time here through patreon um, it is a massive thing um, it's just a massive network that we have here and we can't do it without your help uh, and so go over to patreon.com slash trek fm see how you can become part of the team Honestly, every little bit helps. We also have some great contribution levels where you get extra things as well. So uh, some extra little perks. Go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and, and see how you can become part of the team. Now, John, uh, when you're not uh, you know, here at the 602 Club, uh, what else is going on with you? And where else can people find you online if they would like to talk to you about all of your loves, whether it's being a slow-mo gentleman, uh, maybe about Star Trek. I know you love all of these different spy genre things. Where people find you, man? Yeah, well, so uh, I spend a good portion of my time behind a mic. And uh, if it's not 602 Club, then it's usually something for the Roddenberry Podcast Network. So you can find us at podcast.roddenberry.com or just go to roddenberry.com, click on entertainment, click on podcasts. Um, Yeah, if you want to find me on Twitter uh, and you want to talk about Trek, Look for me at Mission Log Pod. If you want to talk about all the other stuff, Bond and Uncle and Mission Impossible and, uh, oh, I don't know. Let's see. I think some of my recent conversations have been about ELO. <laughs> so you can find me at DVD Geeks. <laughs> and yeah, I, uh, I have a little thing going on uh, Instagram as Slow Mo Gentleman. Uh, just for fun. Every now and then. Not all the time, but uh, pop in. You might find something entertaining there. Yeah, I think you will. I think you really are going to be entertained. So uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, on Instagram, Letterboxd, and Tumblr under the name MattRushing02. I'm here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I'm over on the Nerd Party Network with a couple of shows. One is Owl Post with Drea Kaufman talking about Harry Potter each and every week. Just one chapter at a time. It's been a lot of fun as now we're in the Order of the Phoenix you can also find me over on Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills talking about Star Wars each and every week. We pick some just fun topic that we've been thinking about in that vast universe and discuss it there. And then last but not least, doing cinema stories with my good friend Courtney uh, as we talk about films through the lens of faith. But we want to say thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Thank you.